This episode of the Boss Builder Podcast is brought to you by Boss Builder Academy. If you are a newly promoted supervisor, somebody who's in the role and struggling, or even somebody who's thinking about one day making the transition to management, it is an overwhelming and stressful job. To help you out, please check out our Boss Builder Academy. Our Boss Builder Academy gives you the knowledge and skills you need to be a successful boss through a series of videos and guided discussions. It's something that you can do in as little as five minutes per day, and it will give you practical, tangible, tactical skills so you can be a great boss. For more information, check us out at www.thebossbuilders.com or call us at 931-221-2988. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of the Boss Builder Podcast, the podcast for those of you who are new to supervision, those of you in the role and struggling, and those of you who are even thinking about one day making the transition to management. The episode we're going to be listening to today is an interview I actually did for our sister podcast, HR Oxygen, and it's all about allies in the workplace. Now, the reason I wanted to re-record it for this podcast is that, you know, one of the things that we stress very, very seriously for those of you who are the boss is that you have to protect the house. This episode is going to talk specifically about protecting the house. Our guest is Sherry Martz. Sherry is the founder and CEO of Smarts Consulting. She's a scientist. She's a mixed martial artist. She's a really, really interesting person. But her role involves helping people feel like they have safety and security in the workplace. This is primarily geared toward HR professionals, particularly females. But I want you to listen to it because ultimately you are the ones that have to prevent the kind of nonsense that Sherry has to go and fix. And so listen carefully. You're going to learn a lot of really good techniques. More importantly, things that I think you should be thinking seriously about as you work to build the type of environment where people really feel comfortable and able to do their very best work. So with no further delay, let's meet our special guest, Sherry Martz. Sherry Martz, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. I'm glad that you're here too. The topic I think is a relevant topic today. We're going to be talking about workplace allies and why do we need them. And you've got a lot of experience in this area. And so before I get to the questions I want to ask you, I was hoping you could spend a few minutes and talk to us about your background. Where is your area of expertise and tell us how you do what you do. So I'm sort of on my fourth or fifth career at this point. I'm not sure which it is. I've lost count. Um, But I have kind of an unusual background. I have a doctorate in physiology. So I'm a scientist by training. And I still have that kind of um, critical thinking, evidence-based approach to pretty much everything I do. Um, I launched my consulting company a few years ago, Uh, I used to run a scientific society. I was the executive director of the Genetics Society of America. So I know a little bit about running scientific societies and other associations. And a few years ago, I was hearing and seeing some blog posts about experiences women were having at conferences where they were being sexually harassed. And this was at professional society 
annual meetings, board meetings, pretty much any time folks got together um, because they belonged to the same association. And I thought, this is not good. This really needs to change. And I tapped into something that I used to do back in the 1990s. I used to teach women self-defense. So I'm pretty good at teaching women how to know where their boundaries are, how to hold those boundaries. So I started doing some workshops and trainings, and from that just grew into this broader approach of, you know, it's not just sexual harassment, it's other kinds of harassment and bullying that go on. And it's not up to just the targets of that harassment to solve this problem. It really needs to happen on an organizational level. And I got into doing the ally trainings because we need allies. And I think we'll have a chance to talk a little bit more about that later in the podcast. Yeah, the allies is where I want to go. But, you know, when we had a call a few weeks ago as we were thinking about doing this session, it just really shocked me that at professional conferences that sexual harassment could take place. Now, granted, my background in the Navy, we are on the radar screen for that because of Tailhook, which was a convention for naval aviators that were ran for year after year, and it had a, a real bad incident in 1991, which put probably sexual harassment on the map and labeled the Navy as the biggest perpetrator. But tell me a little bit more about what happens at conferences, because this really shocks me that people could... And I'm assuming this doesn't just mean conferences held in Las Vegas, right? Oh, absolutely not. And it's pretty much any conference. I mean, if you think about it, some of the scientific meetings uh, that I've gone to uh, can have upwards of 20,000 people at a, in a convention center. That's a small city. So you're going to see pretty much the whole range of human behavior. So that's the first thing. It's like you get a large number of people together together for a period of time and stuff is going to happen. Uh, the, what I learned, so, so when I first got into doing this, I would talk to folks who ran associations and I would say, you know, I think you have a problem at your meeting and I can help you solve it. And they would say, no, I don't think so. We've never heard anybody complain. And one of the things I had learned is that unless there's a process and a person to complain to, people won't report it. Um, so I did a survey. And I did, you know, just standard sort of survey questions. I, I borrowed heavily from a couple of folks, particularly Holly Curl, who's a research researcher who's done work on street harassment. Um, and, you know, part of the reason I did that is because a lot of what I was hearing from women was harassment that was more like street harassment than it was like uh, workplace harassment. So it was things like catcalling. And, you know, people commenting on your appearance or making really bad jokes or groping um, up to and including, I'm sorry to say, women being slipped roofies at receptions. So wow. when I, as I was doing the survey, I did a whole series of interviews. I interviewed about 12 women specifically about their incidents, including one woman who I, I started the interview the way I always did, which because they were structured interviews. And I said, um, can, you know, can you just tell me what happened? Tell me about your experience. And she said, which one? Mm. And I said, how many? And she said, oh, probably at least six. And I said, well, tell me the worst one. <laughs> so we started huh. there. Um, so yeah, this, this does go on all the time. Um, initially, as I said, my focus was on sexual and gender-based harassment, 
but I'm hearing more and more now racial harassment, harassment on the basis of perceived immigration status, um, uh, LGBTQ harassment, ableism. I mean, you name it, and somebody's been harassed over it or, or at least microaggressed uh, over it at a conference. So it's, um, yeah, it was startling at first. When, and sometimes it still surprises me, some of the stuff I hear. Well, I guess what's the recourse? Now, I, I in a former life, I worked for a trade association. We would have an annual and a mid-year meeting, and they would be in, in places like Phoenix. And it was, I would say, 95% old white male. It was uh, for government contractors. And there was a few females in there. And I guess I would always, I guess I never really even thought about it because we were on staff and we were busy. But where would a person even go aside from calling 911? Because and I'm thinking too, like about National Sherm. So there was a little south of 20,000 people at the conference a few months back. Where do you go if you're harassed? Is there a is there like an ombuds person or something? What would you recommend? Well, I mean, I think that question of where do I go is uh, prob- is key. And for organizations that don't have a formal program for addressing harassment at their meetings, my recommendation is find this most senior staff person you can find and tell them about it. And barring that, find an officer. Um, So somebody who's wearing one of those ribbons that says board of directors, that sort of thing. What I do recommend, though, is that associations get really conscious about this and actually adopt a code of conduct that is specific for the meeting. So I know a lot of organizations will tell me, well, it's all in our code of ethics or it's all in our ethics statement. Well, that's great. And you need to pull out the part about behavior at meetings and turn that into a code of conduct at your meeting that you publicize, that you let people know, here's the behavior we expect and here's the behavior we don't allow and actually spell it out. And have a process, have a person, have an email address, have a phone number, a Twitter handle where folks can report incidents that happen and have procedures in place for investigating those incidents and taking action on them. And the action that you take can be based on how serious the incident is. You know, if it's um, if it's simply verbal harassment from someone who's kind of socially clueless and thought they were being funny you might be able to educate them about that this is inappropriate behavior at a professional event and send them back into the meeting. If it's someone who's who's a repeat offender or who gets extremely defensive or who wants to argue about the existence of a code of conduct, those are the folks you might want to consider asking to leave the meeting. And that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. You can ask Meetings are private events. You can ask people to leave a meeting because you don't like the color of their socks, as long as you're not discriminating on the basis of a protected class, you're pretty much safe in asking somebody to leave because their behavior is unacceptable. So um, so that's simply thinking it through, first of all, from the point of view of the staff, like how are we going to handle this? And making sure that everyone at the meeting knows what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And there are a number of ways to do that. You can do a click-through on registration. You can put up signs all over the, the event venue. You can announce it from the podium. You can, there's all kinds of ways of getting the word out. What I've learned is that the people who do this kind of thing are in the minority, And the majority of men in particular, when it comes to sexual harassment, 
um, simply aren't aware of how pervasive it is. And once they find out, they're horrified. So, and that's where the ally thing comes in because, you know, that, that reaction of, oh my God, I can't believe this has been happening. I'm sorry you had to go through that. What can I do about it? What can I as an individual do about it? That's where having some savvy in terms of how to be an ally to folks who are facing this kind of harassment is really key. Well, we're going to talk about allies in a minute, and I don't want to keep uh, attacking this, but it's just something that I think is important. Now, the audience that listens to our podcast tends to be HR professionals and a lot of time managers. Is there anything you would recommend from a corporate perspective on, you know, maybe like if I'm going to approve you to go to a conference before I sign the whatever, you've got to read the our, our company policy on how to behave. I can only go back to the Navy where we were told you are in the Navy 24-7. If you go out in town and get in trouble, not only will you face whatever law out there, when you get back to work, man, it's it's going to hit you a second time. Is something like that, Sherry, uh, worth looking into for companies? I, I actually think there's two things that that companies can do. The first is when folks want to go to a meeting, ask the question, do they have a code of conduct? And consider whether you want to send employees to a, to a conference that doesn't have one. Um, because that's going to get the message across to trade associations in particular, but any association really, that, that this is now the con- considered state of the art, right? This is now um, a normal thing to have a code of conduct. And if you don't have one, you're kind of behind the times. So I think that would be extremely helpful because why would you want to send an employee into a situation where they might face harassment and have nowhere to go with it? I think the others on the other side is um, finding out that someone who works for your uh, company has done this. Yeah, to consider that also a form of workplace harassment or workplace misconduct of some kind. So there's this idea that's that's emerging from a lot of this work called the omnipresent workplace. That is really regarding any time people are in a situation by dint of their employment. So whether it's at a conference, whether it's happy hour with a bunch of coworkers, whether it's you know a, a management retreat, whatever the situation is, even though you're not physically in the office anymore, the rules still apply here. And that was one of the things I learned um, as I was doing some early research on this, which is the behaviors are sort of like they kind of reflect an attitude that, oh, I'm not in the office, I'm not on campus, I'm not in my workplace, so the rules don't apply here, and I can get away with anything because nobody's going to tell tales about what happens at the annual meeting. And that that culture of, oh, you know, the annual meeting equals, you know, party fun time uh, mm-hmm. is starting to shift a little bit, I hope. And I'm not, you know, I'm not telling people not that they can't have fun. You just can't have fun at someone else's expense. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I guess keep in mind, too, if you're walking around, your badge has your name and then the first name you want to be called right underneath that, it has your company. So when you are assuming you're the person who feels comfortable doing the harassing, I got your name and I got your company right there. And with, you know, phones and whatever else, recording devices, yeah, I, I guess I'm I'm just still shocked and reacting to it from our initial call because I never really thought about it, but it does make sense. And so 
yeah, just be on guard. And for those of you who are managers, protect the house. This is what we always talk about as a responsibility. So the name tags help, um, except for two things. One is that oftentimes, especially when it's egregious harassment, the target of the harassment is so flustered that they don't even, the name doesn't register. They don't get the name. Uh, the other is that serial harassers, the ones who really are conscious about what they're doing, hide their name tags. They flip them over or they slip them in a pocket or they just happen to not be wearing them at the, at the time. Yeah. So um, the name tags help, but they're not the ultimate answer. Mm, yeah. Well, just be vigilant, I guess. Well, let's, the, the topic today is on workplace allies, even though I've taken it way off into the, into the weeds. But we want to frame that around uh, diversity and inclusion. And so Diversity and inclusion is a hot topic. People tend to put those two together. They talk about those quite a bit. So I was wondering, before we start talking about allies, in your opinion, and for your definition, what is the difference between diversity and inclusion? And then secondly, why does inclusion matter? Why does it belong there? So the the difference between diversity and inclusion is the difference between an adjective and a verb. So diverse is an adjective, and diverse is an adjective that refers to groups. So an individual isn't diverse. A group is diverse. And diversity is, in effect, a numbers game. How many in this particular category do we have in this particular group? So it's fairly easy to measure. You just count heads. Um, So a lot of what you see in the business literature, in particular, that's talking about inclusion is actually talking just about diversity because it's easy to measure and it's easy to run statistics on how you're doing with diversity. It's not inclusion. So inclusion is include is a verb. You you there are actions that need to be taken in order for a workplace, a meeting, any group of people to be truly inclusive. So in, inclusion's harder to measure because it's about how people feel in a particular situation. It means that everyone can feel psychologically safe enough to be who they are in its entirety, a fully and authentically show up in a workplace, in a social setting, um, in a, at a meeting, uh, without having to fake it to fit in. I think that's really the key way to think about it. And it also means that the individual has the opportunity to contribute to the end result, to contribute to the bottom line of a company, to contribute to um, projects, you know, their ideas are accepted, they're accepted, the whole package is accepted. So, and, and the thing is, you know, you see all this, all, all this in the literature about how important diversity is for innovation, for productivity, et cetera, et cetera. You know, all the great ideas come from diverse groups. If the group is not inclusive, those ideas aren't going to come forward. So it's not just diversity. Just mixing people up is not going to get you where you want to go. There has to be some behavioral changes and some thoughtfulness behind it in order to make groups entirely inclusive. Well, I think you summed it up the way I think a lot of corporations do is that you started by saying, you know, diversity is really a numbers game. How many people are identified in this group? But yeah, you're right. Just having the numbers checks a box. It completes a report. But if I don't feel like you're even listening to me, you might as well not even invite me. So exactly. that, that makes sense. Right. 
And the other way that a lack of inclusion shows up is in the expectation of assimilation. So you're accepted into the in-group, you know, you become part of the group, provided you act in and appear in a way that ties you to the dominant group. I like to joke that this is what explains women's business wear in the 1980s, right? Because we were all wearing the big shoulder pads and the floppy bow ties and the suits. You know, I mean, that was women trying to assimilate into what was a predominantly white male culture. So, so when assimilation is expected, you're not going to, you're not going to have full inclusion. And the other way that it sometimes shows up, the lack of inclusion is when people are asked to be representative of their group. So they're the token Mm. of whatever group they're in, or they're asked to speak for that entire group. Um, that kind of thing is not, um, that's, that's oftentimes where you get when people say, oh, we want to celebrate our differences. Well, that's all well and good. But when you're put on the spot constantly and your difference is pointed out constantly, then that also gets in the way of full inclusion. So it's really being able to show up and have your contributions acknowledged and valued that makes for a fully inclusive workplace. Well, then how do allies help with that? So full inclusion takes culture change and that there's just no way around that. Um, it, it really does require some change. And one of the things that needs to happen for a fully inclusive environment is folks need to become aware of how their unconscious biases show up. Now, I like to say that unconscious bias is kind of like armpits. Everybody has it. We all have armpits. Most of the time, we're not aware of them or thinking about them. But every once in a while, those armpits may be offensive to others, and you may not be aware of it because mm -hmm. we don't really smell ourselves, you know? Mm -hmm. So if your armpits become offensive and someone points that out to you, it's your job to fix the problem. Unconscious biases are the same way. It's like there's nothing, there's no blame or shame in having them. We all have them. It's just how our brains work. It's, it's, it's old survival mechanisms that are still running around up there. And it takes having allies who are willing to point out the unconscious bias of others and to have that bias in themselves pointed out that's, that's really going to make the culture change. So it's having folks who are willing to say, hey, you know, I heard what you just said, and that's not acceptable, and here's why. Or I just saw what you did, and that's not acceptable, and here's why. So, um, so that we can, again, you know, raise the unconscious to the level of consciousness, become more aware of how this stuff shows up, and stop doing it. And it's, it's, it's really pretty simple. Um, it, it's an active role, I mean, being an ally, and it takes creating some congruence between what you say you want. You know, we want a workplace that's inclusive and equitable and how you actually behave in that situation. Well, what is the difference then between an ally and a mentor? Because it sounds like they could kind of be it. The ally is the one that's going to call you out, if, if that's what I heard. So is that different it, than we, a mentor? I would say that an ally is someone who calls out behaviors 
So not necessarily calling out an individual or, you know, somehow giving them a dressing down, but more pointing out a behavior. And allies can be allies in pretty much any situation, regardless of their relationship with the target. Because one of the keys to being an ally, in addition to saying, I just noticed this behavior, or you you just said this, you just did this, is to talk about how it affects you and not second guess how it affects the target. So where a mentor might want to take that target aside and suggest a change in how the target might do something or might want to speak up for the target, an ally will talk, will say something like, I just heard you say this racist thing or this sexist thing. I don't like that. I find that offensive. And that violates our code of conduct, our code of ethics, our workplace, whatever, Um, our workplace mores, our workplace values. So to both talk about how it affects you as as an an aware person (laughs) and how it violates a community norm of some kind can really be powerful. And then to simply say to the tar- say to the to the person who's who's done this you know and don't do that don't say things like that don't behave that way whatever it is they've done so it's really about that um you, you can be an ally in any situation um it you, it you don't even have to know the people involved to be able to step in it's a form of active bystander intervention a lot of times so okay. it's a form of just noticing something's happened being willing to take responsibility for addressing what's happened and then stepping up and doing it. So if you're, if you're the boss and you're listening to this right now, having allies does not mean you don't have to step in if you see or hear something that's unacceptable and say, well, their ally should be along any time now to call them out. Right. I'm, I'm sorry. You broke up a little bit there and I couldn't hear the question. Yeah. So I'm just curious because it sounds like if, if you're the boss listening to this, if you've got people with allies in your organization, this doesn't mean that you no longer have to confront bad behavior and just say, well, their allies will be along any time to call them on it. I guess I'll just go back in my office. So so th- I guess this does not replace good supervision, right? Oh, quite the opposite, actually. So if you want to drive this kind of cultural change in your organization and make an organization more inclusive, it's absolutely critical to have leadership on board and to have leadership show changes in their own behavior, um, because otherwise it's not going it, to it it's not going to trickle up <laughs> necessarily. So so one of the things I love doing is doing ally trainings for folks who are in managerial and supervisory positions because it gives them a, it's basically a tool set. You know, it's a set of skills. Uh, to to be able to step in in situations and, you know, as I said, ad- addressing the behavior, not necessarily shaming the person who did it, but simply saying to them, what you just did, that's unacceptable. And, and hopefully they'll start to learn that they can't do that in this workplace anymore. So it's, it's absolutely critical for supervisors, bosses, managers, executives to, to learn this stuff and to start to exhibit this behavior. It gives other people permission to do it as well, which is um, really powerful. So in, I guess you, as an individual, you would pick an ally. Would you, I mean, is it one of those things where you invite them to be your ally? How does that work? 
or is it done like yeah. some mentoring zone where you're assigned an ally? Have you seen anything with that? Um, it's actually nothing like that. So folks who decide they're going to be allies, um, it, it's, it's something that has to be kind of driven from within. Um, you can't point to somebody and say, you, you're going to be an ally. They have to really be willing to do the work that lies behind being a skilled ally. So essentially an ally is any, can be anybody in a particular situation who has some form of social privilege. And by privilege, what I mean is, because we use that, we use the word privilege to mean a lot of different things. But in this context, privilege is the, the advantages that are given by society to some individuals based on their personal characteristics and are denied others based on their personal characteristics. So these are not, privilege is not something that you ask for. It's not even necessarily something you've earned. It's something that's simply handed to you by society just because of who you are. So it's the privilege of being male in a male-dominated society, being white in a white-dominated society, being straight in a society that's dominated by straight people. It's the privilege of being physically able. It's the privilege of being, you know, cisgender as opposed to transgender. So they're all different ways that each of us has a certain amount of privilege, including socioeconomic privilege. So even in the category of straight cisgendered white men, who tend to be on top of the heap most of the time, there, there are tiers of privilege there based on socioeconomic status and education and, you know, all kinds of things. So you can break it down fairly fine grained, but it's, it's important to recognize that we don't all walk through the world with, with the same degree of privilege. And part of the way we're reminded of that is that folks who lack privilege face experiences that add up to um, what I refer to in, in this context as oppressions. So that's the, that's the pervasive inequality that people who lack privilege experience. So oppression is just that reminder of you're not on the top of the heap. You may not belong here. You may be here, but only by um, grace and favor of the people in power. So that's, that's how, and, and that's how it shows up at work. And Oppression can isn't oh isn't necessarily you know being told you can't have a particular job because your skin's a particular color or because you're a particular gender, it's it's subtler than that. So it's the little things that happen on a day to day basis that really start to um, wear you down and that get, send you the message of you can only participate in this, you can only be here in this place uh, if you behave in a certain way. And, you know, to bring it to bring it down to reality after all of this <laughs> theoretical talk, um, street harassment is a, of women is a particularly good example of this, because the message that street harassment sends to women is not, hey, you're really attractive and I just can't control myself around you. That's not the message. The message is I dominate this space. I control this space. I decide whether you get to feel safe here. And there's not a lot you can do about to change that. Mm. And my, my behavior is going to be driven by how you react to this. So the examples of you know, catcallers telling women to smile. And if a woman doesn't smile in response to that, they get hostile. 
that's that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And that happens. I mean, that's a pretty um, obvious example of this kind of thing, but it happens on a subtler level for for folks who are who lack privilege um, on a day to day basis in every workplace. So for the ally partnership to happen, and just to clarify for me, would it be the person an ally with someone who has the same privilege or would it be the opposite? Um, if it's someone who has the same privilege as the person who's doing the oppression, the oppressive thing, that can be really, really powerful. So again, in that street harassment situation, some, some guy, you know, cat calls a woman. If another, if another of the guys that he's standing there with, because they're usually in groups, um, turns to him and says, Hey, don't do that. Don't, don't make comments to women. Don't tell women to smile. I don't like that. That's not appropriate. That has a lot of power mm-hmm. because oftentimes what this behavior is about is generating an in-group and an out-group. And if you're part of that in-group or you're trying, or they're trying to pull you into that in-group and you turn around and say, no, I don't want any part of this, that's really powerful. Um, folks who are targets can also back each other up as allies. And one of my favorite examples of this was in the, uh, in the Obama White House. So Barack Obama had a very diverse staff in the White House, and they would have these high-level meetings in the West Wing, and the women would find themselves, as often happens in these kinds of situations, being interrupted, being talked over during meetings, having their ideas picked up by one of the men in the room, and suddenly it's taken seriously, where before it was being ignored. All of that was happening. And this happens a lot. There's, there's actually a linguist named Deborah Tannen who's done research on how much this happens. And the men are doing it. They're not, they're not consciously going, oh, I'm going to interrupt Susie now. They're just enthused. They want to get their idea out there and they just do it. So what these women did was they banded together and they said, okay, we're going to stop this behavior and here's how we're going to do it. If you get interrupted, I'm going to interrupt the interruption and make sure you get to finish your thought. And, you know, if my idea gets left on the table until, you know, one of the men picks it up, then you get to point out that it was my idea originally. And they they literally consciously banded together to do this. And they did it. And it did change behavior. So ultimately, the more they did this, the less likely the men were to interrupt and talk over. So, so, you know, folks who face the same kind of oppression, and I mean, you know, it was a fairly, well, I was, I was about to say it's a fairly minor oppression, but actually when you sit through meetings like that day after day after day, and you're the one being interrupted and your ideas are being stolen and it, it wears you down and it does leave you feeling like, do I really belong here? Am I truly included or am I just here to check a box? So, so, so yeah, so both and, right? So folks who are in the dominant group can be powerful allies. Folks who are not in the dominant group can definitely have each other's backs. Well, you've made the case that it's important. So, so the last question I'll ask you then is how can a person become an ally? What are the steps? What do you recommend? Well, I, I think the very first step is you have to, you have to educate yourself. Uh, um, You know, so a lot of us who are in dominant groups and who are well-meaning, we, we want to learn as much as we can, as fast as we can, and we tend to go to the folks who face these, these oppressions and microaggressions and things and say, teach me, teach me, teach me, tell me about your experiences, you know, and that's exhausting for the folks, for those folks. So don't do that. Educate yourself. And there's many, 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 many ways to do it now. 
I mean, I learned a lot from books. I learned a lot from taking workshops. We used to call this anti-racism training back in the 70s and 80s. Um, but now we've got podcasts, you've got videos, you've got all kinds of ways to learn about the experiences of people who are not like you. And if you get a chance to take an ally skills workshop, that's that's really um, another good way to, to kind of educate yourself about this. It when you when you're called out on your own behaviors, if you invite that, which sometimes you have to be explicit about it, um, to like to listen, to really listen to what and and try to damp down that immediate defensiveness that jumps up, and to say, okay, this isn't an attack on me. This is something I can learn from. This I can learn from whatever mistake I just made. So listen actively, listen empathetically um, when people want to tell you about their experiences. And the real key is you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Hmm. So we're talking about culture change. And if you're in, in a dominant group in a culture, then this is going to get a little squirmy. This is going to, you're going to get a little uncomfortable with some of this. And that's okay. It's not going to kill you. And this is how you know that change is happening, is if you just feel that little bit, that little prickle of discomfort, it's okay. It's okay to be uncomfortable um, because eventually you'll get comfortable with it. It's going to expand your comfort zone in a huge way. And, and the other thing is to stay humble, right? So you're going to make mistakes. You're going to screw this up and you apologize and move on um, and learn from the mistakes. And the, the apology needs to be sincere. One of my, the, I, I found this analogy uh, on a website about ally, allyship, and I absolutely love it, which is that when you're a person with privilege in a situation, it's like you're walking around with big, heavy boots on, and the people who lack privilege are all walking around in sandals. So inevitably, you're going to step on somebody's toe. What happens when you step on someone's toe? You immediately take your foot off of their toe. So you stop the behavior that's offensive. You apologize. I'm terribly sorry, regardless of your intent. So always that, that um, ability to kind of uh, recognize that impact is always more important than intent. Whatever your intent was, the focus needs to be on what was the impact. You hadn't intended to crush that person's toe, and you just did. So you take your foot off, your shoe off, you, you apologize profusely for what, what just happened. You ask, what can I do to help? Do you, would you like an ice bag? Whatever, you know. And you start to think about, ultimately, how can I fix this problem? You start to notice, oh, look, there's all these people walking around in sandals. That's not right. Maybe we can get them some boots. So it, it becomes kind of a process of understanding that your, the impact is more important than what your intent was, apologizing for that impact, and having your awareness raised of how these impacts happen. Is, is, that's really, really key. So you start paying attention to what's going on around you, which is the second step once you've educated yourself. You, you start to recognize oppressions when they happen. And this includes not just the really egregious stuff that anybody would point to and go, oh yeah, that's sexual harassment, that's racial harassment, that's, you know, that's discriminatory against people in a wheelchair, um, you know, the obvious stuff. 
but even the subtler stuff. So all of the ways that individuals tend to be singled out or ignored or overlooked or otherwise discounted in a workplace because of, of a personal characteristic. I think one of the things I like to point out is that, um, especially in the United States and, and especially in places like, like academia, um, anywhere where there's a pretty steep hierarchy, we have this myth of meritocracy. This notion that regardless of whatever adversity you face, you're, you know, the cream will always rise to the top. And it's a myth. In actual fact, what's happening, um, and since I do a lot of work around women in science, this is particularly true for women in science, is yeah, there are that, hand, that, that small percentage of women who actually do you know, attain career success in the sciences. But what about all of the women who were forced out? It's not a leaky pipeline. It's like people, it's a gusher, right? Women are being pushed out of science and technology and engineering careers by harassment, by discrimination of various sorts. Um, so I, I, you know, the, so meritocracy is this belief that all other things are equal and the cream will always rise to the top. When in truth, meritocracy or a belief in it is deliberately ignoring all the stuff I was just talking about, privilege, oppression, inequalities, all of that. So we have to stop ignoring it and actually consciously address it to, to really um, take advantage of all of the brilliance that's out there. I sometimes say that, you know, if it weren't for sexual harassment in science, we might already have a cure for Alzheimer's, diabetes, and most cancers. Because who knows what those women who were forced out could have done if they'd stayed. Um, anyway, so, yeah, so, so, and then, then the job of the ally is to figure out once you've been able to, um, you know, educate yourself, recognize what's going on and decide you want to do something about it is to kind of step in and, and do the sorts of things that are going to change the culture. So deciding to take action. And you can work this on a bunch of different levels. So you can work it on the organizational level. And that has to do with things like um, policies and procedures and even especially anything having to do with selection. So hiring, promotion, awards, all of that. Most hiring processes, most selection processes of various kinds have some bias built into them. They're just kind of inherently biased because that's what our brains do. So finding ways to mitigate that bias or minimize that bias the, or the effect of that bias is really, really going to be key. Um, but also just making sure that, um, that, that your workplace is welcoming, that it feels safe to folks. And sometimes what that takes is asking people doing those surveys, asking people about how they feel. Um, on an individual level, in, it, it's, a, it's kind of a moment-to-moment-to-moment -moment thing oftentimes, and so it's really about changing the culture by changing behavior. And there's, there is some, some research that's actually been done on inclusion, not just diversity, has found that while the organizational stuff is crucial, What's really, really key, the biggest piece of the puzzle is how individuals treat each other. And that was one of the reasons why I got into to doing this work. So 
It's about stopping a particular behavior in the moment when it's happening and also conveying that whatever that behavior is, is unacceptable and, and shouldn't be repeated. Um, and it's, there are, and there are a number of different ways to do that. Um, I've talked about a couple. One is, is simply calling it out when it happens. And again, this is, the important thing here is to address the behavior, not the person. So it's not, hey, jerk face, don't be such a butthead. It's, I just heard you say, I just saw you do whatever it was. Don't do that. That's unacceptable here. That violates our community mores in some way. And again, to speak for yourself and not others. So that affects me in a negative way. Um, you want to keep it clear and simple and direct, this interaction, because that'll help minimize the opportunity for defensiveness. And, and if the person you're talking to gets defensive, I find just simply repeating, I don't like that, don't do that around me. Don't say those sorts of things around me. You're effectively setting and holding a boundary um, is, is what you're doing. One thing I do recommend, I mean, we all love the snappy comeback, right? Um, but I, in situations like this, I recommend, you know, getting and staying serious, at least to the extent, to the, for the time of this interaction, and try to avoid using humor or sarcasm or irony in a situation for two reasons. One is that it usually backfires. And the other is that it's not my job to entertain these people. You know, it, it's, they just need to, I just want their behavior to change. I'm not here to make them laugh. So um, another thing that I like to point out is that sometimes, you know, we laugh at stuff that we know is inappropriate. We laugh more out of discomfort or nervousness than out of, than because we think it's actually funny. And <clears throat> when that happens, one of the ways you can, you can kind of, follow that up is to say, oh, you know, that wasn't actually funny. I just laughed because it made me un uncomfortable or I was embarrassed for you or whatever the, the reaction was. I'm actually surprised you would say that. Mm. And you can do that in the moment. You can also do it the day later. You know, hey, you know, yesterday when you said that and I laughed, it wasn't really funny. Don't say things like that. So, so there's always that opportunity of following up afterwards if you want. Um, and another thing to do, if you think the person might be amenable to change or doesn't really understand how what they're doing is offensive, um, to ask them some questions. So, so what you just said makes me think that you think, is that the case? Mm -hmm. Whatever it is that, that you think they think. Um, or would you have said that to someone who has more privilege than the target? Um, is that really what you intended? Is that what you meant? Did you, you know, so to kind of point out, gently point out to the person that what they've said probably had an impact they didn't intend, or that you certainly hope they didn't intend. And again, to convey this message of, you know, that's really not um, acceptable here. Uh, one of my favorite examples of that is um, the Dwayne The Rock Johnson rule, which is a rule for men when you're talking to women. And when you're about to say something to a woman, you think to yourself, would I say this to Dwayne The Rock Johnson? And if the answer is no, you don't say it to the woman either. Mm -hmm. So, hey, baby, give me a smile. Would you say that to Dwayne The Rock Johnson? Yeah. 
I don't think so. No. <laughs> so, so it's kind of an amusing way to think about it, but it's effective, right? If, mm-hmm. if Dwayne The Rock Johnson were my ally, would you be saying that to me? Um, another tactic that can be really effective is joining the target. So this is where you see something happening. You see, see someone you know, action being taken against someone and you step in and go, well, what about me? How about you search my bag? How about my, my favorite example of this actually was a young woman a couple of years ago who was asked to leave the speaker's lobby in the house of representatives. She was a reporter and she was there to give it, do an interview. And the sergeant at arms told her she had to leave because she was wearing a sleeveless dress. And apparently there was an obscure rule in the sergeant at arms handbook that said women can't wear sleeveless dresses in the House of Representatives. So she was asked to leave. And some of the women in Congress heard about this and word spread. And a few days later, every single or close to every woman in Congress, every woman Congress member showed up for work in a sleeveless dress Hmm. and essentially dared the sergeant at arms to throw them out. Mm -hmm. He didn't. And they then got the rule changed that very day. They actually changed the dress code for the House of Representatives. So it can be a very powerful tool for pointing out when something is just, um, you know, is an inappropriate targeting of someone else. And then finally, what we really want, right, is to invite the target in to make Um, the invitation to participate as explicit as possible. And one of the ways of doing that is what happened in the Obama White House, which is amplifying the voices of folks who are targeted. This is really powerful in meetings. So when you notice someone being interrupted or you notice that the idea that, that Susie presented five minutes ago, now Joe has taken over and claiming that it was his idea, to be the one who says, hey, I liked that idea when Susie said it five minutes ago. Let's Mm. talk about Susie's idea. Or to, again, interrupt the interrupters or ask people not to talk over others during meetings. That sort of thing can can be really powerful. It's important to notice who's missing. Why don't we have? Why isn't there um, someone with that characteristic here? You know, how can we make this more, more, um, more inviting and more welcoming for folks like that. And another thing that's really key is to make invitations explicit. Um, I actually early on had a conversation with someone who had a, a, their board of directors was entirely male and had been for quite a while. And I was just asking them, you know, why is that the case? Well, we had, we've never had any women express any interest in being on the board. And I'm looking at them thinking, well, if they've never seen a woman on the board, why would they imagine that you would even care? Mm-hmm. Like, no, you have to make it explicit. We want some women on the board. We want some people of color on our board. We need more people with disabilities here. We need more pe- whatever category. So make those invitations explicit and make sure that the space is going to be welcoming for those folks. Well, it's an awful lot of answer. Well, it it was, but it was a (laughs) thorough answer. And so, you know, if you're listening to the long answer, then you're probably saying, okay, for one, this is stupid. I don't have the time for this. We're too busy. It seems to me that you do for two reasons. Number one, it's the right thing to do. And and I think the second one is that if a workplace has more cohesiveness, you're just going to be more successful. You're going to make more money. So I think, I think both are the case here. And, and I think that it's, it's, definitely worth taking seriously. So Sherry, you mentioned ally workshops. 
how can my folks get a hold of you and maybe have you come and work with them and talk to them more about how important this is? Yeah. So I, as I said, I really love um, doing these trainings. It's, it, they're really, really powerful. And if folks want to see a little bit more about what I do, um, prob- probably the best place to start is my website. My business name is Smarts Consulting. So S-M-A-R-T-S Consulting.com is the is the URL for the for the website. And that's also my email address is just my first name, S-H-E-R-R-Y at smartsconsulting.com. Um, and you can find me on Twitter and it's my first and last name. So at Sherry Martz. Uh, my Twitter feed can get sometimes get kind of entertaining. So <laughs> <laughs> that might be fun. Yeah. I, I can imagine. I mean, I want to say, you know, I, I, I tossed out a whole lot of, um, of, of sort of information there. And there, there, there are some books. There's a book called Better Allies that's out there that's actually really quite good. There are websites and places you can go. One of the folks who uh, sort of got me into this work is a woman named Valerie Aurora. And her company is called Frame Shift Consulting. And she works a lot with the tech industry out in Silicon Valley. She herself is an open source software coder. Um, And I love to give Valerie some props because she's worked really, really hard on making cultural change happen in situations where there's a lot of resistance. And um, she's she's really kind of a role model for me. So I would definitely also check out um, Valerie's stuff at frameshift.com because um, her, her work is really powerful. It's great. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us and give us this really important information. And if again, if you're listening to this today, take it serious, reach out to Sherry, and I think you're going to find that it's going to really benefit you. So Sherry, thanks again, and best of luck as you continue to move forward with your message on allies. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks for taking the time to listen to another episode of the Boss Builder Podcast. You know, if you're listening to these as you are commuting to and from work, I would highly recommend you listen again when you get home just so you can take some notes. We do our best to get you great information. And sometimes if you're like me, you got to write the stuff down. On another note, for your further development, if you work for an organization and you think that it would be valuable to partner with us, which I think is a good idea, We invite you to check us out online at thebossbuilders.com. We have three options, our signature driving results on-site workshop, which our trainers come out and deliver for you. We also have our very popular Boss Builder Academy, which is video driven. And we also offer the option of having your organization license our training materials so that your trainers can go ahead and deliver them on-site. If you're listening to our podcast on iTunes or on Stitcher, the other thing we'd appreciate is if you could just take a moment and leave us a brief, positive, of course, review. That would really help us out a great deal. And refer this podcast to anybody you know that you think could benefit from it. Until the next time we meet, get out there, boss up, boss on, and more importantly, make a commitment to being the boss at being a great boss. Goodbye.